Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Hey everyone, welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. Taking a break from my busy day to give you a short podcast on a Tim Keller thread that I asked folks on social media whether or not I should talk about, and the consensus was, yes, John, you should. So you're listening to this much later. I'm recording this on March 4th, but I want to get a bunch of material out there for while I am traveling for a week and a half. Please pray for me. I'll be speaking in a number of places that the gospel would go forward, that people would understand the dangers of social justice and what Christianity has to say. So uh, I would appreciate that. But I want to record a bunch of short videos just to have material for all you uh, who follow the podcast while I am out there unable to record. Uh, And so uh, this is uh, kind of a cold reading. I know some of you don't like that. Some of you do. Uh, So I'm going to go through a thread that I know the gist of in a way. I've skimmed certain tweets in it, but I, I have not read it in detail and I haven't given it a lot of thought. But the thing is, we've talked about Tim Keller so much and we've talked about this third way Uh, position that he advocates, that it shouldn't be, in my mind, that much of a chore to identify the issues and the assumptions uh, that come with this. So let's, let's together, let's go through it. And I think one of the reasons this is helpful is because when you get this kind of rhetoric from your pastor in real time, and you want to try to respond to it or ask good questions in real time, then it it can be difficult if you haven't, uh, if you're not ready for it. And uh, you haven't taken time to mull it over. So I think since so many pastors are getting their information from these celebrity pastors like Tim Keller and conference speakers, I, th- I think it's a great exercise to just kind of think through beforehand, if you can see that influence, maybe what a good question would be or what kind of, um, what kind of uh, assumption that to, 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 to identify that maybe your pastor or or a Christian leader, you know, it could, could be, you know, at your Bible study or whatever, you know, may be advocating. And, and then to humbly and graciously and nicely, as much as you can, uh, try to, to help in this. And everyone's circumstance is different, and I'm not trying to tell people, you know, go correct your pastors and be mean about it or anything like that or exercise some pride. I'm, I'm just, all I'm relaying is there's a reality here. There are pastors out there, and there's a lot of them who do get their talking points and their ways of thinking about some of these things from celebrities like Tim Keller. So, uh, so so you may find it at your church if you haven't already. And so the cold reading kind of helps us in real time identify, uh, okay, what's what's the kind of question to ask? What, what's going on in, in this language here? So here here's the thread. It's about, I think, nine tweets. Uh, and he says, thread on how Christianity does not fit neatly into current political ideologies. Now, let's stop there. 
he's starting off on an interesting foot. I just want you to notice this because I don't know of anyone who would make the argument that Christianity fits neatly, right? That's the, the word he uses, neatly, into a current political ideology or an ideology from the past. It, it just doesn't, or a political party. Christianity in some ways transcends this world, this temporal world. In other ways, the Christian ethic should be applied in this temporal world. And even different Christians are going to differ exactly on what that might look like, but Christians in general should agree that there is a Christian ethic and it should be applied. And the political sphere would be no exception. So um, the, the, the first assumption here, or the first, some might say straw man, perhaps, or just uh, the, uh, what he's arguing against seems to be, possibly, uh, that you know, Christianity is not going to fit into current political ideologies, and we shouldn't assume that it would. And, and the, the, the thing is, that shouldn't be controversial to anyone. I don't think anyone says this. We have a political party that gives Christians a seat at the table that, in general, in their party platform, tries to defend a Christian sense of morality. We have another political party ripping that down. There's no contest in my mind if, if those are your choices, but if you make a standard, you assume that there must be a standard in which you must reach some kind of perfect Christian perfection, no political party will ever reach that. As soon as you have a sinner, even in a good political party with a good Christian ethic, you know, it, it wouldn't meet the criteria because you have someone who's sinful. So don't, don't expect perfection. Don't expect Christianity to neatly fit into a political, and, and the word ideology is interesting, an ideology. In my mind, ideology, uh, and perhaps we're operating on two different definitions, would, would conflict with Christianity anyway. But, uh, but, but this is the foot he's getting started on. This is, and so I think uh, there's a sense of reasonableness. There, everyone's going to agree with that statement. It appeals to everyone. They just realize, well, yeah, of course not. There's no perfect Christian party out there. And, and so that, I think, allows him then to make the argument he's about to make. He says, the early church was marked by a deep concern for the poor and racial equality. Now, let's stop there for a minute. He cites Galatians 2.10 and Galatians 3.28. So let's go there. I have my Bible with me right here. Galatians 2 uh, and then chapter 10 says this. It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And he's talking about the Jerusalem council. So Christians engage in charity, right? Uh, and then Galatians 3 and 28 is the verse, and it says this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the oneness that we have in Christ, the shared identity, because we are adopted into this spiritual family. But that doesn't get rid of the temporal world and the identities that are contained in this temporal world. So uh, <clears throat> that's not exactly, I'll just say, the racial equality being called for now through efforts to redistribute privilege and platforming and resources. Not the same thing, or to take down certain historical monuments, to defund the police, it's just not quite the same. I'm not seeing that in Paul, right? So we have to be careful. When you, when you say racial equality today, that's how it's used. And that's nothing, that is not even in the same, it, it just, it's sloppy in my mind to, to try to 
make that fit, right? So, so his first sentence here, Christianity does not fit neatly into current political ideologies. That's true, but neither do political ideologies fit into Christianity, right? So you gotta be careful with terms that come from ideological thinking and then just saying, well, yeah, Paul, Paul, Paul believed that. Well, yeah, of course you be concerned for the poor. That's not socialism, <laughs> it's charity. So he says at the very same time, it taught that sex was only for within a mutually self-giving, lifelong covenant of marriage. And I don't think we need to look up First Thessalonians or First Corinthians because we, you know, this is, we know this, yeah, of course. Uh, to our modern ears, this sounds like a contradictory mishmash of liberalism and, and conservatism. Well, let's stop there. The only reason it sounds like that to our ears is because of the way Tim Keller framed it. It's not because the Apostle Paul is saying things that sound contradictory or they're from two different political parties or ideologies. It's because Tim Keller is boxing Paul in and and putting create he, he has a category that he associates with the left and then he's putting bible verses there he's jamming paul into this category and saying well paul agrees with this you know deep concern for the poor and racial equality that's of the left uh yeah but it's not socialism and it's not uh anti-racism in the sense of we would think of that today in a critical race theory driven kind of thing so, so, so I say, no, that's not what Paul's saying. It's not what he's advocating. And I'm not just going to grant that this sounds weird to our ears. If you read what Paul teaches, it shouldn't sound weird to our ears at all. Paul's not endorsing those things. So uh, today the church is being fragmented, he says, by progressives and conservatives who want it to only serve one of these commitments and discard the other. Now, he's right that there's a political divide going on in, in the church, and he's right that uh, it's, it's, uh, it is splitting churches up. In fact, I've spoken at churches that are the result of splits or that gained a lot of people because of splits that happened in the community or something like that. And politics generally played a role in the last two years. But I've argued that this isn't really a surface level political thing as much as it is uh, the a, a political movement that has underlying religious assumptions that's coming into the church and seeking to change the church in some fundamental way. So it's, it's actually much deeper. The assumptions, remember politics, you're, you're applying ethics. So those ethics are coming from somewhere. And, and at the root, uh, this is going to come downstream from a religious point of view of some kind. So, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not simply progressives and conservatives in the political sense. We need to remember that. It's actually a, a fundamental, it's fundamentally different visions for what ethics ought to be based upon. And, and if, you, if you'd miss that, and if you just think it's, it's, it's a little more surface level, it's just progressives and conservatives, then you're going you're gonna to get a wrong diagnosis about this issue. You're, you're going to try to... Uh, downplay it as if it's not that important and we need unity together. We need unity. We, do, we just need to, uh, to, to come together despite these differences we have that are diametri diametrically in opposition to one another. You can't have unity under those circumstances. If, if one person thinks socialism is very acceptable, so stealing's okay if it's done on a mass scale, I was, I was at a, a conference last night. Some, some of you might know, it's an old country music uh, artist, Marty Stewart. Uh, 
probably 10% of you knew who I just mentioned, but really skilled. Okay. And there was a song that they were doing. I, I, I like never go to concerts. I think it's been, I don't even know how many years, but I saw Marty Stewart was going to be in the area. And uh, since I'm in upstate New York, I mean, you know, country music, especially older country musicians, they're not going to come to this area, but Marty Stewart came. So I thought, well, I'm not going to have that opportunity. Let's go see him. And they did this song uh, by, it, it was like a Woody Guthrie song, like an old, old, old song. And it had a line in it about some people rob you with a six gun and other people with a, a pen, with an ink pen or something like that. So I, the idea is that there's politicians, they'll rob you and they, they make it legal. And, and uh, they, they repeated the line in the, con in the concert. They stopped the song and the guy who was singing, it, wasn't, it was actually the drummer got up and sang. And he said, I like that line so much, we're going to repeat it. And, I, and everyone kind of laughed and clapped. And I mean, it's, it's true, though, that that's what socialism ends up being. It's, you know, you're not robbing someone with a six gun. You're robbing someone with, uh, with a pen. You're signing a bill. So um, if you have someone who believes that, like stealing's okay under that, those circumstances, or they believe, yeah, we should, we should uh, you know, redistribute according to a concern that, you know, we have a, a, an anti-racist concern or something for racial equality, get rid of disparities. You're going to end up with a very fundamental disagreement at your church, and you have to work through it. And you can't just say unity, unity when there's no unity. But a lot of pastors are doing that. And I think it's because of guys like Tim Keller. So the church is fragmented, and it's, it's these, these, two, these two children can't get along, these progressives and these conservatives. They're not playing nice. So he says this, but to the church, the sex ethic and the justice ethic are a whole cloth. So if they just saw the wisdom of Tim Keller, these two kids in the playpen who can't share the toys, and they're splitting off into different ends of the nursery, they, they would be able to get along and, and stop crying about things if they just would realize that the sex ethic and the justice ethic are a whole cloth, that there is no contradiction, that, that really there's, there's aspects of liberalism, there's aspects of conservatism that uh, we can both bring together and integrate into one another, and that's going to end up being something that constitutes the Christian ethic. It sounds really good, doesn't it? And the reason it sounds good to so many people is because, number one, we can get rid of conflict, right? If we just came to this common ground position, which is apparently based on the Word of God, that allows conservatives and progressives to kind of be in the same place, then we can get rid of conflict. We're sick of this conflict, right? The other thing is it gives us a comfort of being in the center. We're not out on the edge over here. We're not on the edge over here. We're in the center. It's very comfortable to be there because you know, you're not going to be unfairly targeted by either side, really. You're seen as reasonable, that you can transcend the debate and see it objectively for what it is. And, uh, and so there's not as much risk associated with that. Pastors, I mean, look, you, you're sick of seeing your church divided. And if one half leaves, then you're going to lose a lot of finances. I mean, what's the way that we can keep both sides happy and giving to the church and doing ministry and all that? Well, maybe we can introduce this, that there's some hybrid between the two positions. There's, even though they're diametrically in opposition, which I, I pointed this out, we can somehow uh, make out like they're really not in opposition. <clears throat> Sexual immorality and injustice go hand in hand because the unifying principle that unites them is Jesus who had ultimate power and privilege, there's that word, but sacrificed it in order to love and save us. 
Well, let's finish the story of Jesus. Uh, yes, Jesus did, uh, as Philippians talks about, he, he, he came to this earth. In fact, let's go there. Let's, let's go there uh, and just read it because I, I think, um, I don't want to just summarize it. So Philippians chapter 2, I have my Bible open here. ESV translation is what I have in front. I usually use NASB 1995, but I had an ESV next to me, so that's what I'm using. Uh, it says this, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Now, hold on, whoa, hold on, verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Wait, hold on, hold on, that's not, <laughs> that, that's not supposed to be in the narrative. And then verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Yeah, so Jesus did give up some things temporarily, and then what's the end of the story? He's king. Everyone bows to him. In fact, he comes back with a double-edged sword. That's also Jesus. Jesus isn't just this suffering person on a cross. That's the Jesus' liberation theology. If you just relegate Jesus to, to that moment where in a way that's so unjust, he dies. And that's what they like to focus on. And Jesus becomes the symbol for the oppressed because he relates to them. Jesus is, I mean, this is a purpose that he was fulfilling in doing that. And that purpose I mean, for the joy set before him, it says he endured the cross. The joy. Something came after that, and it includes him being a conquering king. So this, if you just finish the story, it backfires on this narrative. Jesus gave up his power and privilege. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that would, is an example to us. Well, yeah, we should humble ourselves. We should submit to the Lord, but the Lord's got a plan. And guess who's ruling with him? Hey, you guessed it, Christians. And they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do with all that political power that they wield. That's just the biblical story. I'm not adding anything to it. I'm just telling you what it says. How often does Tim Keller talk about that stuff? The story kind of gets chopped off. And I know this because I've read so much Tim Keller. That, that's kind of where it goes. All right, so he says this. He says, this was a self-giving rather than self-fulfillment and self-realization. This is the basis for biblical justice. Why? To help the marginalized always will require sacrifice, given what we have, giving what we have for others. Now, I have no problem with helping people. That's certainly part of the Christian ethic. We are to engage in charity. But the government coming and forcing us to do it is another matter. And if you seek public policy that makes the government this bully that forces people to give to certain charities, like I trust them to know which ones to give to, or certain causes, I should say, then you're, you're not in this, it's not in the same category as the, the uh, charitable, voluntary kind of giving that Christians should be engaged in. And, and, I, and I realize this is a shorter podcast. I don't have time to get into you know, some of the objections and, that people bring up from case law in the Old Testament, but you're not going to find the Old Testament. I'll just say this. 
like you know the corners of fields being unpl- unplowed and stuff you're not going to find like uh, government coming in and then holding people's feet to the fire and enforcing that and having penalties associated with failing to do that so um and, and it was a little bit of a different situation uh because of the theocratic uh, framework there but uh new testament certainly you're not gonna you, you don't see that kind of thing so to so, so we're we're being sloppy at best. At worst, we're saying, and really he is saying that progressive policies when it comes to anti-racism, when it comes to anti-poverty, are biblical in some way. There's a connection between them. That's what he's trying to communicate, and we should embrace that somehow. Then he posts an article here that I would recommend to you, Tim uh, Keller on Justice in the Bible at gospelandlife.com, and you can check it out. It's It's one of many articles he has on this. And Tim, Tim Keller's, um, he's interesting when it comes to whether this should be under compulsion or not. I've read things by him where he says, yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally fine to have political policies that would compel and, and essentially force people to redistribute their wealth for one of these causes. And then he has other statements where he kind of backs off of that. And it's, it, and I think this is one of those articles where he kind of backs off. It's like, well, there's uh, forced redistribution, but then, you know, the Bible kind of gives this softer approach where we're, we're just expected to, to give out of this you know, generous heart that we have, but it's also something that you know, the government can mandate, but and it's not necessarily supposed to be compelled, but obviously you're presenting a scenario in which like, it's going to be compelled. So uh, go ahead, check it out. We'll keep going with the thread, though. Uh, He says, if on the other hand, you are one of the marginalized, it also requires self-sacrifice to forgive and reconcile even as you seek justice. Today's left doesn't accept B, uh, which is the principle I just read. And today's right, they don't accept, today's right thinks they accept A, but often they don't. And A was his previous treat where uh, we we should be self-giving instead of self-fulfilling and self-realizing. And... So uh, th- th- this is the um, kind of like anti, it- it's the David Platt kind of thing. It's the Ron Sider thing. It- you know, having a big yacht, having nice things like that's, you know, you should be just self-giving. You gotta be, you know, don't, don't try to be materialistic and buy into the American dream. It's that kind of thing that he's talking about. And um, I- we- we've talked about that whole notion before. Obviously, the Bible teaches it is more blessed to give than to receive. But there isn't a, uh, if you are living for pleasure and riches, uh, then yeah, you're in sin. You're, you're actually, you can't serve God and mammon. Uh, it's, it's hard for a rich person to get uh, to the kingdom of God because they tend to rely on themselves. There's a lack of humility there. But uh, you can also be very rich and also be godly. Uh, and we see examples of that. Um, <clears throat> uh, we see uh, Solomon even, I mean, having all these riches and yet having uh, also being the wisest man. Uh, there's, not, there's nothing in the Bible you're going to actually find that, that would say, um, you know, riches are in, a, in and of themselves bad things. Joseph of Arimathea, right, uh, was a rich man. Uh, Zacchaeus, a man who uh, gave the money back that he stole, but I'm sure that, I mean, he's a tax collector. He's probably still a wealthy guy at that point. There's, and, and so it, wealth is not demonized. It's, it's the motivation. It's the making that an end in and of itself. It's 
So can can conservative conservative? Here's the thing: conservative policies aren't meant to address these hard issues because you can't. You just can't. You can set conditions for the market, but you, you can't address hard policies. In fact, socialism um, attempts to do this, and that's one of the problems: is that you, you're trying to curb selfishness and force people to be generous, but then at that point, it's not generosity, and in the name of doing that, there's a third party that gets involved, the middleman, and they end up wanting their cut. And then you have this whole class of people that get their cut, and they end up being the rich guys, and they end up controlling things. And so it's not that's not a viable solution. You're just actually creating a, a bigger problem, and you're uh, creating you're actually giving the notion to those who are allegedly oppressed that you know they they are really owed something, and that. Um, and whether they are or not, that that can also. I mean, couldn't you say that socialism maybe creates this this motivation to to want to get wealth and self fulfillment, self realization? So, it you could turn that argument right back around on him, in a way, and say like, look, the left is at least just as guilty of of this, if not more, and the right's at least not pretending to try to amend these hard issues. You know, if you, if you create a, a fair economy, a, a system that applies a, a just standard to everyone and less regulation, less taxes, all of that, and you have one guy on down the street who, you know, indulges in everything his money can buy for himself and also reaps the misery that comes with that at the end of his life. And then you have someone else on the same street, you know, very similar, who decides to give to charity. The system isn't causing them to do that either way. So... It's socialism does try, though, to insert itself into the motivations of men's hearts and change them. And that's, that's a very key difference. You, you have to realize this. Uh, <clears throat> socialism, people in, in, that as ascribe to that think they can somehow tap into the goodness of man or change the nature of man because the problem ex is external. Conservatives have always been suspicious of that, thinking no man's actually flawed, sinful, would be the, the really the Christian word, and they are going to seek their own. And you, you want a economic system that is going to use that self-seeking nature that most people are going to have to benefit others, and not. Uh, and and you also want those who do have good motivations to be able to uh, get wealth and hire people, and uh, the, the pursuit of happiness is how Thomas Jefferson put this, but. Uh, life, liberty, property was the common phrase. And when he meant pursuit of happiness, that's what he meant. It was property. It was engaging in business to secure uh, resources for your family, to carve out a living, have something you could call your own, and fulfill the responsibilities God has given people. And if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. It's not the government's job. It's your job, right? So this is the, the fundamental difference between these two philosophies. They just look at man differently, and they have different ways of of different levels of optimism on what the government is able to do to change or uh, tap into some kind of goodness in man's nature so to, so this seems to get sidestepped in a lot of things tim keller writes he, he doesn't either see that or it's not i don't know he he just kind of attributes to the right that they're like there's some a contribution there some kind of like solidarity that people on the right have with this self-fulfillment and self-realization. And so um, the right the right thinks that, you know, they're they're in good shape, but you know, they're they're often uh, they often don't. They're not helping the marginalized. 
you know, in fact, they're, they're engaging in this American dream kind of materialism. And, you know, many of them who vote for the Republicans, they probably do. There's no argument here, but that, that's irrelevant. That's the thing. It's irrelevant. It's those, those hearts would, those, those hearts would be doing the same thing in a socialist system. Then the motivation just becomes, how do I get a government job so I can get my cut, you know, or, uh, how do I lobby so that I can uh, make a carve out a space for my business, which is where we are at now, and make sure that the rules are in my favor? I mean, you never get away from that. That's the heart of man. So he says, um, so he's making a moral equivalency here. If in case you can't recognize it, today's left and today's right, they, today's left has this weak part of them that, that they're too... Uh, soft and too accepting of home uh, of, of sexual deviancy and then today's right man way too accepting of materialism that kind of thing and not caring about the poor as much that's really the sense you're getting in reading this it says this is also the basis for christian for the christian sex ethic the modern world sees sex as a commodity to be consumed enjoyed in relationships conducted contingency on a profitable cost-benefit relationship but real marriage requires mutual self-sacrifice the giving up of independence for the deeper joy of interdependence this is why the bible and the church has always seen sex only within marriage and doing just as a whole un uh, cloth united by the principle of self-sacrifice, of losing oneself to find oneself. They are one and the same that leads to human flourishing. Now, the language he uses, I'll be honest, it is kind of confusing, okay? Uh, I, it, to to impose what I think he's saying, right, from, from like a conservative Christian, traditional Orthodox standpoint would be that God... Uh, has designed men and women differently, and when they come together, there's a special union that takes place that he uh, endorses, and that this, this is part of his plan in general. There's people who have the gift of singleness. Jesus didn't get married, right? But that this is his plan. That That's what I think he's saying, but the words he's using aren't words that have typically been used. I mean, to talk about, uh, to, to speak of it in, in a way that, like, the, what's the word he uses here? He says, the giving up of in, independence in, for the deeper joy of interdependence. I mean, unless you have the gift of singleness, I guess. I guess. It's, it's uh, God, but, but if, he's, if what he's saying is just that God made one for the other, then, I mean, absolutely correct. There's, and there, there's no issue there. But it, it's, uh, it's interesting how he phrases things sometimes because it's, it's often not the biblical language. It's, it's coming from somewhere else a little bit. Uh, and I don't mean just that that one line. I mean, like, just the, these two tweets, the way he talks about it, and the way I, in other writings that he talks about this. He does this with a lot of things, like sin becomes brokenness. He doesn't really talk about—there um, there is a book where he talks about hell somewhat, but generally he, he softens it in most of his writings to— you know, um, a, a kind of in the C.S. Lewis way. It's, it's a place that almost like people choose to go to. and it, So he, he tends to soft-pedal things— that would cause an offense to the secular culture in New York City. And then he, he ends it with this. So, so no innate like issue with those past those two tweets. I'm, I'm not saying I have an issue with them. It's just it's confusing for some. It's just not it, a lot of um, a lot of people will look at that, I think, and be like and not exactly sure wholly what he means by it. He says, don't let the modern world split you. Don't buy into the packaged deal current political ideologies ask of, a, of us. 
See how Christianity affirms aspects of all ideologies. Well, that's a dangerous statement, but also critiques them and redirects them. So I, my, I guess a question I would like, I'd have is like, does it affirm aspects of Nazism, right? That's an ideology. Uh, does it affirm aspects of communism? Like, does it affirm aspects of, I don't know, Freud, Freud Freudian psychology? Does it like, so, so questions to ask, right? After, let, let's say your pastor says something similar to some of this, uses similar language, tries to bring out that moral equivalency, which just, there really isn't a moral equivalence, equivalency between the left and right. It's, he, he gets off the rails in the, the first two tweets. And after that, because if you go along with them on these first two tweets, you'll kind of buy into the rest of this. And it, it sounds really nice. You can have a Christian Orthodox sex, sexual ethic, but then at the same time, you can kind of engage in uh, the BLM and socialist kind of stuff if you want to in the name of Christianity or a softer version of it or something. So it's appealing. It's attractive to, to people who want to kind of, like I said, be in the middle and keep their congregations together and all that. But the question I would ask, number one, is what's an ideology? What do you mean by that? Let him explain uh, what, what he would mean by that. I, I don't want to assume an answer to this. I think I know what it means, but what, what does he think it means, right? I don't think he thinks Nazism like, would play into that, right? That that's, There's an aspect of goodness in Christianity in that. Uh, so that's one thing I would ask. The other thing I would ask, and it's in these first two tweets, is when he says the early church was marked by a deep concern for the poor and racial equality, like, what do you mean by a concern for the poor? And is some kind of redistribution scheme compelled by a government authority or compelled by even the church, let's say, or some, some kind of a central authority? Is that what you have in mind? Is this a forced kind of thing? Uh, what is this, is it charity you're talking about or does it include uh, something that's forced, right? So I'd, I want to know that. Uh, is stealing okay if it's on a mass scale? Or at what point does it become stealing, right? Good questions to ask your pastor. Uh, racial equality, right? What do you mean by racial equality, Tim Keller? Or, or if your pastor says this, what do you mean by racial equality? Do you mean we're all one in Christ on a spiritual level? Is that what you mean by it? Or do you mean that disparities should be eliminated in, in certain ways? Or do you mean that, you know, do you think Paul would have marched with BLM? Or do you, th you think that um, that there that there are uh, differences between different racial groups that uh, are, that must be rectified somehow? Uh, be, and, and how would that happen? Would it be state action? Would it be, uh, are, are we supposed to just voluntarily do this? And why do you think that that would be part of the left's plan? It described to me this tie you're making between the left, the political left, and Paul's thinking of Galatians 3.28. Because he, he doesn't really explain that. So those are the kinds of things that I would ask. You know, is this part of the Democratic Party platform? Would they be cool with Galatians 3.28? Uh, or, or was Paul talking about a uh, not a temporal reality in as much as he was talking about uh, a reality, uh, an eternal reality? Uh, and it does have a, a temporal representation in the church, but that, that is, uh, it, it's not to say that um, someone, let's say from, oh, we'll say from Russia, <laughs> as I'm recording this now in, on the 4th, is someone from Russia uh, who's a Russian citizen 
If they come to the United States, do they get all the privileges that come with being a United States citizen? Well, no. Well, is that is that wrong? Should, should that be rectified? Is that an example of racial inequality? Would Paul be against that? So you can come up with a scenario like that and just ask, you know, wh at what point? Uh, what does that look like, you know, tangibly? Let's not let's get out of the esoteric world and get into the real nuts and bolts world. And and that's one of the things I think that Tim Keller often does. He uses general language. He uses sometimes esoteric and abstract language, and oftentimes it just flies over people's heads. And it, and it's mixed with sometimes emotionally nice sounding words. And without concrete examples, it's often hard to see what he actually is talking about. But by the time you reach the end of a thread like this. You're kind of convinced, you're led down this path of thinking that, okay, Chris, there's some Christianity in the Democrats, there's some Christianity in the Republicans, perhaps, and we just got to like, unite around the aspects of Christianity that exist in both these parties and like kind of, uh, kind of create this third way. And that's exactly what this, this, this is, is a third way. And for even, the reason some people think that Tim Keller's pushing things towards the Democratic Party is because one, he is a Democrat, he's registered Democrat. But the other, the, the real reason is because stuff like this is being introduced to an audience that has traditionally, for the last couple decades, voted Republican and voted conservative. And so it's his audience that is causing this. It, the, the people that are hearing this aren't on MSNBC. The people hearing a thread like this are people that have been part of churches, or at least a movement that uh, at one time would have been more in line with Jerry Falwell's kind of moral majority. So that's that's why it's 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 who the message is getting to and how it's moving people away from uh, a conservative way of looking at certain key issues that are in the news right now. So that's my take on this. Those are some of the questions that I would ask uh, about this. And I hope that's helpful for some of you. Um, a lot more can be said, but I'm kind of running out of steam right now. And I want to record some more videos for you all. Uh, like I said, uh, more coming. God bless. Please pray for me as I'm on the road. Bye now. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.